You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero. Welcome to our new podcast series, Gaia Says No, in which we will explore the nature and impact of human activities on the planet. Join Future Net Zero founder Summit Bowes, along with environmental campaigner Angus Forbes and analyst Alex Millward. There will be some strong language. Welcome everyone to Gaia Says No, our hit podcast series. Thank you so much for downloading it. We've been amazed by your reaction. My name is Sumit Bose. I'm the founder of Future Net Zero. And as usual, I'm joined by my two cohorts, Alice, Alice, I was going to say Alice, that's really Alex and Angus. Although Alice, Alice quite works for you actually, I think as well. How are you boys? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Sumit. Great to be here. Very well, and my, my alter ego uh, at the weekends is also well. <laughs> Very you, excited. You, you've been out in the countryside, haven't you, mate? Yes. There you uh, go. Into, into the Midlands. Well, there Staycation. You go. Staycation, uh, always a good one. And, and Angus, I don't know where you are. Are you, are you actually back now? I'm you back. Thanks, I've done the European COVID dodge trip and made it back, yeah. <laughs> He's made it back. And uh, I'm delighted to say that we've got a very special guest from across the pond, as they'd say, Alison Anderson Book from uh, Baker Hughes, the VP of Energy Transition. That was a very big title I've just given. Can I just say hello, Alison? Does that work? Yeah, hi. How are you? I'm doing okay today. I'm doing okay. I have not had success at staycations like these gentlemen have. I have you, yes. I was going to say, which part of the states are you in? I am in Washington, D.C. Okay, so it's 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 not a state actually, so it's confusing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Alison, you're joining us to talk. Really, we've got a good topic this week, which is uh, based on kind of where we will go to. So we've called this episode "Can Black Really Go Green?" And the reason being, it's all about kind of the fossil fuel, the status quo industries that we have, and how can they help us transition to net zero. Or are they seen as many people as, you know, the, the old guard and we need the new guard? So we're going to explore that. But um, I'll bring you in in a second, Alison, but thanks very much for joining us. I know you've got a very busy diary today. Um, let's just start with that, boys, because, you know, we've covered in many episodes that without the fossil fuel industry, we wouldn't have got to where we've got to. You know, from the steam age, industrial revolution, you know, the powering of plastics and science. And, and it seems that, you know, everywhere you go now, every headline you turn, there's uh, a general feeling of public, and let's not talk about kind of business, but let's, a public perception that sort of oil and gas is evil and it's, it's the bad world. Is that a feeling that you guys get when you're out and about talking to people, but also your kids? I mean, let's talk about the next generation. Let's start with you, Alex. What, what do they think of that? Because you, you obviously work in you know, working with companies like this? What do, they, what do they think of the oil and gas sector? Yeah, no, I, th- I think the perception has changed. Uh, you know, a lot of people at uh, dinner parties or around the family dinner table will say they work in energy and not so much oil and gas. And uh, that, that's increasingly true as people sort of take the headlines and I think are more often saying you know, oil and gas is, is all bad. And at one time, yeah. gas was the clear transition technology um, but yeah, there are increasing pockets which are against that my, my personal view is you know this is what we need to do is the, get the genius of the and affordable energy and clean energy we've seen around the world that the, the damage 
or fiscal poverty where there's energy poverty. And today that is supplied in abundance with easily transportable hydrocarbon, oil and gas to really, really lift lives. And the difficulty of living without energy is you know, really quite horrendous. And yet we know that previously we've been depleting Mother Nature's natural capital too much uh, and that we need to accelerate the transition to, to clean energy. So it's how can we do both? How can we um, lift lives with people needing more energy and get the uh, natural capital in balance with cleaner energy. So you know, I, I'm a big believer that the oil and gas industry has got the technical, fiscal and intellectual know-how to be a major actor in that transition and getting it right. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the thing is, you know, um, Angus, you know, oil and gas, that's where you would want to be. You know, when we were growing up, you know, Dallas was on, it was no one ever thought, oh, God, they're all evil because they're doing oil and gas. It was just they're rich people because they're in oil and gas. Well, absolutely. I think we can all remember the scene, can't we, with Dustin Hoffman and in The Graduate, you know, and the, and the husband comes up to him by the swing pool, you know, and says, you know, well, I've got one word for you. And he thinks, of course, he's going to be caught for his infidelity with the yes. And, and he says plastics. Plastics, you know, yeah. So right. It was J.R. Ewing and it was uh, plastics. That was the era. And I think, you know, as we've learned about the enormity of the task and the damage we've done to the troposphere, it's easy to, to point the finger. But I think that's also in the past. I think, I think the man and woman in the street right now realizes the enormity of the task and that everybody's going to be involved. And clearly, a bad incumbent oil and gas company that's not moving fast enough is going to be, you know, really uh, chased uh, down the street. But I think people are realizing that let's use the expertise that's in the system and let's get going. I think the thing is that really gets me is it's very polarizing, isn't it? Because as you say, if you went back, you know, to when we were in our early 20s, I never had an opinion on the oil and gas industry, apart from when you see a big slick, yeah? And you'd say, you know, good on you, Greenpeace, to stop these bastards, you know, putting oil everywhere and all of this sort of stuff. And that everyone could agree this was bad for the environment. But I never really stopped to think about when I filled up at the petrol pump. I never considered oil and gas to be intrinsically bad as such. When do you think this shift came in the consciousness? Because if you talk to young people now, they're all completely against it. Well, what a, what a, a sort of a, a revolution we've had in ecosystem services uh, knowledge, you know, all going back to Rachel Carson in 1960, uh, with Silent Spring, and then all through Gaia theory and through, yeah. uh, you know, it's just been enormous. And then if you then look at Exxon Valdez, and yeah. you know, so it's, it, it, I think it's encouraging that the knowledge uh, that is spread around the world as to the state of nature um, has exploded. And that's why it's, it's reached the young people and it's part of their lives. And it's a, it's a, it's a really fantastic base to work from. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, Alex, if you look at it, we've, we've all benefited from oil and gas. And we, you know, if you weren't, think about the money that we have, our pensions, all of that, until very recently, everyone wanted to invest in oil and gas companies. That's, that's where you put your money to be secure, wasn't it? Yeah, high fiscal returns, you know, high, high yielding uh, economies that you know, provide a lot of pensions and top-ups into those livelihoods. So, you know, it, it, there has been a massive contribution. But I, I think, as Angus says, you know, the knowledge is changing, and so therefore the, the future does need to be different uh, from the present and the past. 
I think the argument that we often hear lately, and you'll see it, every newspaper, stories we run on Future Net Zero on Energy Live News, you know, every week, every day generally, there's been, particularly the last kind of 18 months, two years, this big word divestment, shifting away. What do you think has prompted this from sort of the business community? Because yes, we've seen the arguments we've just covered here about how people may have seen things and there's more knowledge and we know the oil and gas industry has made a lot of mistakes in the past as well of all good. But why do you think businesses started to switch off from oil and gas as a, as you say, you know, the returns place? Alex, is that me or me? Yeah, um, I, I'm not sure they have per se. I mean, I, I think there is internal employee pressure to to do things differently. I, I think the real challenge comes in, and this is where we need the, the talents of the industry, uh, when there's tough choices. So when people start to have to lose services, go to the light switch, switch the light switch on, yeah. it doesn't come on. Yeah. Um, then, then we'll find out just how committed people are. So what we've got to try and find out is the, is the way through. They can switch the light switch, it comes on when they want it, uh, and still you know, keep the ecosystem intact. Uh, but if, if that gets done and, and people have to make choices, we saw, we've saw we seen brownouts in California with uh, shortages of energy, and there is uproar. Uh, yeah. I'm you know, genuinely convinced there would be large-scale disruption if there was large-scale disruption to our energy systems. And we've seen it in the UK with power outages and the, the uproar that was considered. And, and we just take it for granted in many of the the high carbon footprint countries. Uh, and that's why we don't think about it quite as much. You go to a country that doesn't have energy uh, and they are much more aware of the choices they have. Oh, of course, absolutely. But, but I mean, Ang you know, Angus, when we had Claire Brook on a couple of weeks ago, you know, and she said, you know, she, that whole thing of when she was talking about investing away from oil and gas, she was laughed at. But now all the businesses are looking at that. They're looking at why this cultural shift in terms of, the, the people that you would think would be going, oh, good return is oil and gas, I'll stick it there. Yeah, no, there's, if society is saying there's an externality that hasn't been internalised, and they're saying it often enough, and it creeps through the UNPRI, and one businessman or one business lady says to another, you know, we've got to move here, yeah. and then you get the commencement of disruptive technologies coming in to take market share, and suddenly you reach a fulcrum point, you pass it, and, and it's game on for everybody, and I think that's where we're at, and that's why I'm so excited about today's guest, if I could tee her up. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, knows, he knows me so well. I was just yeah. about to it. It's exactly it. Well, let's, let's bring Alison in. Alison, I mean, you've heard this, what we've been saying. Have we been fair in, in what you think, you know, Baker Hughes, perhaps what would be useful for the audience, if you could just explain who Baker Hughes are for people who are not across the uh, oil and gas sector. Hey, great. So Baker Hughes is an energy technology company that's been around for about 117 years, which is a long time. Uh, it's, it's served primarily as an oil field services company. And, uh, you know, what that is for, for the listeners who may not know, uh, we manufacture a, a variety of products that help enable the production of oil and gas. We also have services that accompany those. But more recently, in the last several years, our company has undergone a fairly big transformation and moved more broadly into the energy sector and thinking about Baker Hughes now as an energy technology company because we don't just 
function in the oil field. What we do is is much more broad than that. What do you think about that argument that, you know, we've just been chatting with the boys, oil and gas were seen as everything, did a lot of things that helped us all. And yet there's been two things, a switch off from the public because of all the, the ecological arguments, but also a switch off from the corporate world in terms of seeing it as a place to invest because perhaps they've just seen their own staff or, you know, public reaction is starting to trigger. It, do you think that's a fair thing? Because obviously there might be a slightly different viewpoint from America. Well, you know, I think that there are parts of the world, uh, and geography does make a difference, but yeah. it's easy for us to sit in parts of the world where we have pretty reliable energy and we, a lot of people take for granted that they can just count on turning on the lights. Like they, when you ask a general person in some, some parts of the world where, where energy is what I would think of as um, almost obligatory, like they, they count on it. It's, it's, it's a, a guarantee, right? So when you think about it like that, a lot of people, and I can say this is part of, part of my family at one point, I would ask, do you guys know where your energy comes from? And, and my mom said to me many, many years ago, and she's a pretty smart lady, yeah. she said, would it be wrong for me to say the wall? And <laughs> I laughed. And I was like, mom, you know, come on now. And she's like, no, actually, I remember because our home is built on top of, of the old uh, tunnels for a coal mine. And wow. so, so, and that's a person who, who, you know, she isn't, she wasn't in energy for a living and she's, she's very aware of where energy comes from. And so, you know, in parts of the U S and other parts of the world, I think people will express their discomfort or their, their, you know, their comfort with the concept of oil and gas by their purchases and by yeah. how they vote and a range of different other indicators. And so for us to say broadly that the global public has turned against oil and gas, but I'd like to extend it more broadly to fossil fuels if we can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Pull, you know, coal and pet coke and whatever you want to pull in. I wouldn't say that it, that's entirely the case because I think no. there are enough people that realize we are very dependent on this. And who are we? in developed nations to say that people in developing nations where it's not an entitlement, that was the word that I was looking for, is people think of energy as an entitlement. Who are we to deny, you know, one person's Absolutely. right to yeah. evolve and have a better standard of living and by saying, no, you can't use that coal to replace yeah. the, the cow dung that you use. Yeah, to absolutely. Your and that's, that's the one, that's the argument we've had on this podcast, you know, in, in, in places like India and China, why won't they reuse those reserves? Uh, because yeah. they're there and, 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 they sh and they should use them to try and get their people better. The real question is now we're more aware. And obviously there's an element of kind of looking back that the West, generally the white West has profited from this for the last 200 years. And now kind of, you know, people of color in, in developing parts are being told don't do it. But, you know, the, the, the the public, and I, I do take your point, and, you know, I, I know I've got some friends in the States who say, you go from, you know, California, there's one view, and yet California still has loads of oil and gas, you know, and fossil fuels, but you go other parts, and, and there's a completely different view. So in terms of, you know, where a company like you is sitting, and your job being this kind of VP of energy transition, is it fair to say you can see that the world is moving? Clearly, you must be. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a job that said energy transition. <laughs> There's truth in advertising, right? So, <laughs> so, the, uh, so I think the world's moving. Uh, you, you know, it's always kind of two steps forward, one step back, right? Because yes. there are so many externalities that we've 
that, that play into energy and how funding gets spent and where investments are made. And, you know, people, the general societal public are a fickle animal, so to speak, right? And of course. while they might feel passionately about passionate enough to stand on a street corner and offer a sign and protest. Are they going to pay more for that bill? Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. And so, yeah. so, you know, so it's going to take longer than we, it should to make a radical transformation to, um, you know, how energy is produced in a way that is less carbon intensive, but I'd like to take it further. Ashley, it's a radical transformation of society to, to own the fact that we all have a role to play in decarbonizing, okay? Because we can't sit and point at Joe Schmo or that company and say, you do this, but then still power the machine and expect, and then, and then not get angry if somehow the price is altered or that particular good or service is disrupted. I think COVID's been very illustrative in showing the fragility of supply chains, right? And so, Ugh. you know, I would just say looking broadly at society, um, it's going to take us longer to get there because I think there are going to be some reality checks along the way where people will realize that they have a more individual role to play and, and they, it can't all be companies because companies can't always afford to do it. And so yeah. what happens then is they go out of business and then people will cry because they missed the thing that the company sold. So, what, so at any rate, yeah, we'll no, get there. I, and I, I get your point. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's the classic thing is, uh, you know, I, I want this, but will I sacrifice? And, and that's where, where people always kind of say, well, I don't know if I want to sacrifice that much. Can I, can I ask you a question? Go, on, go, on, go for it, go for it. On that, like, you know, you're hosting this podcast that's really, mm -hmm. really quite interesting. And you've got some great speakers that I've listened to that come on here. And, you know, w when we talk about that sacrifice, and do you make a sacrifice? Have you made a conscious choice to, to green some part of your behavior? Yeah, absolutely. And, you, and you, you're damn right to ask me that. That's the funniest thing is we've actually, as a, we're a very small company. So for yeah. the listeners, we're, we're a small company of only about 10 people. And, you know, we shout a lot bigger than we are. And we had a look at ourselves and we said, do you know what? Future Net Zero, we're all about kind of helping companies. The aim is, you know, better business leads to a better planet. And we said, we don't even know our own carbon footprint. So we've now looked at what we're using. We're changing the way we work. Coronavirus has certainly helped us because in, in a way it's made us completely shift our thinking. So my staff right now work kind of, two to three days a week. Two members of staff don't even come in anymore. And so, and I'm looking at my thing going, hang on a second, well, how often do I need to use the car? And I don't use it that much anyway, but you know, do I, do I, do I use it at all in certain times? Do I get back on the bicycle? So yeah, you're right. It's making me look at where I am, you know? And I think that's the thing that really is interesting is that we as a society need to change. But I do believe that a lot of that has to come you know, putting it back to companies shifting the dial. So I will still want my phone or my laptop or to drive my car, but I kind of yeah. want you guys in business to make that car cleaner for me or that laptop with less rare earth elements. So in terms of what, you know, you're doing with this energy transition, do you, are you, do you think that there is such a thing as cleaner fossil fuels? Can, can that happen? Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that. That's something I've, I've spent quite a, a long period of my career uh, thinking about. I mean, I think, honestly, the best is yet to come. And when, when 
you know, when society's back is against a wall, we tend to be the most innovative. But uh, so, so we've been kind of hovering around some technologies for a while and, and haven't made the material advancements that are needed. And when I mean that, it's, it's if you think about something like carbon capture and storage. Yes. You know, this is the what, big what, thing that everyone talks about and no everybody one's really talk- investing in it. Yeah. And so there was another time about, oh, God, that would be... I don't know, 14, 15 years ago, where it really ramped up and it was really prevalent, particularly in the, in the halls of Congress, right? Yeah. Here in the US. And, and we were all talking about incentives and a massive uh, government investment was, was put in place in, in the last uh, economic challenge that we had in the, in the recession. And in, there was something like 3.6 maybe billion dollars allocated for carbon capture and storage projects through a, a variety of different kinds of mechanisms, you know, and, and yet what people will point, the, the critics will point to is like, but you know, that was then and, and what do you have to show for it, right? Mm. Well, projects are, are going ahead, but the economics still have to work. And, you know, when you are like where we're at right now in with, with what's happening with COVID and, and the un- unemployment rate, particularly here in the U.S., is very high. You know, we're looking at a time where people can't pay the extra money to underwrite the cost for this, and companies cannot uh, erode their margins further when they're furloughing employees to make the normal business work. And so the market conditions have to be a little bit different. They have to be a lot stronger, and we need to see much more of a nation-state-level commitment to really drive policies that would enable the deployment of that or require it, right? And this is not me taking an advocacy uh, position here in, in our conversation, but just just stating what's known. You know, people, companies will react when when they're either incentivized to do it or they're forced to do it. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. We, we, yeah. We, I mean, we've covered that many times in podcasts. Yeah, there's an element of kind of you do it, but there's an element of you, you you're forced to do it. That makes you more inventive to do so. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. Yeah, well, that certainly but, to go back to Rachel Carson was was yes. a big push, right? And yeah. people became more innovative on dealing with um, getting dealing with socks and knocks and acid rain controls. So of course, yeah. and, and So where you are now as a company, Baker Hughes, and you you, you talk about kind of you, you're not just want to be seen as as, as people work, working in the oil and gas sector. So are you are you working with renewable companies? Are you putting in technologies in different fields that could be in this kind of as we transition? into hopefully cleaner, greener energy that you're, you're trying to get involved in that. Yeah, we are. We are. We're, we're taking, we're taking a pretty hard look to it at where we see the biggest market growth uh, for, for looking more broadly beyond what our core competencies are as a company. But, but I could point to a couple of really what I think are very cool parts of our, our tech portfolio. You know, we, we've invested a lot in additive manufacturing and that is a solution and, and thinking about how we can transform how we make things, right? Yeah. There's the, but the piece particularly that, that I, I find really cool is, is we've got a technology that allows you to essentially see inside a thing like a, a car battery or a cell phone or some kind of object that you don't want to have to actually pull it apart to inspect the inside. And so, so Waygate Technologies are, are one that, that we've got that you can use to basically have non-destructive um, um, remote sensing of an object. Why does that matter? Well, I mean, if, if I was going to give you an example like 
looking around my desk, let's say I've got my iPad and I don't want to have to pull that apart because it then will lose its waterproofness. You can, put, yeah. you, you can use Waygate to look inside of it. You could apply that to almost anything and scale that up. And so that becomes a very cool inspection technology and quality assurance way that doesn't result in more waste. Because if you think about how people have historically inspected a lot of, let's call it tech gadgets, because I don't want to be, I want to be agnostic in what I'm talking about. Because <laughs> I don't want to give away like who who are who are who our clients are and things like that. But the um, but when you think about it, a lot of times the solution was I'm going to randomly pick one in ten objects off of an assembly line and pull it open and see how we did in assembling it. Yeah, and then you got I, I a lot it. of destructive waste, right? And part of where we're going for a transformation. Is is waste produce emissions too, and so we have to be very creative, right? And so the so can black go green isn't just about is it oil production. It's also making sure that we can help society have less waste. For instance, I mean that's a one really great societal challenge that a company like ours could help with. I mean there is an element, and and I absolutely understand where you're coming from because we've we've talked about the circular economy and. One of the biggest things we can do instead of trying to do it, just use less if we all used a bit less that would be really interesting and then if you looked at the end of life of products you know a simple example is my fridge has just decided to pack up we had a mini heat wave here in in england and you know it's packed up and i said right well how do i dispose of it oh well don't worry just call us we'll we'll tip it well that's not right there's loads of you know bits yeah. of metal in there and freon gas and all that. why are we not as as a society why are businesses not taken out so I get where you're coming from. But before I bring the boys back in, looking at where the, the, the oil and gas, the fossil fuel sector is going, one thing that is clear is, as you said, you're, you're over 100 years old. This sector has been going for 200 odd years. There's a lot of knowledge there that if we take a very drastic viewpoint to say that is old, that is bad, what we need is renewable, new tech, and it's all, it's all clean we're making a fool of ourselves because we're going to lose out on that knowledge, aren't we? Because we kind of need that knowledge to transform. We do. We do. There's a lot of really creative minds and some really great experience that come out of the, the more conventional oil, oil field perspective. And I would say on the mining side and all of the, the bigger, you know, the extractive industries more broadly, you probably heard this with other guests that you've had, the, the tendency, this is my cautionary tale, and then I'd love to, to hear from, you know, everybody uh, pulling the guys on this, is that, you know, as we think about what the future of energy looks like and sort of the greening or, or, or you know, making sure that we don't have to choose societal needs over the environment, I think that those should not be diametrically opposed to each other. They should go together. Um, the You've got to think about if, if we decide to pick a technology, and so, so we also are... are in the renewable sector, I should tell you, you know, we've got a, a very um, a great uh, solid geothermal business. You know, we, we work around wind turbines as well and uh, condition monitoring and some other things. And so when you look at, say, some of the other renewables, right, you've still got to ma- manufacture good, okay? And you've got to make sure that when you think more broadly about how the object was made and its longevity, okay, that you aren't creating this this unintended consequence at the end of the life or at the start when you're taking it out of the mine. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The embedded, the embedded carbon argument and all of it. Yeah, absolutely. Look, absolutely. Look at the whole, the whole life. Look at the whole thing. And I think yeah. that's where 
the challenge lies because so much of the argument is very divisive around energy and energy choices. And so it's, it's meant to be that sort of polarizing thing, black versus green, for instance. But really, at the end of the day, uh, we all just want secure, clean, reliable power. And we want to make sure that we can pay people a fair living wage. And we want to be ethical. And there's all of these good things that roll up in ESG and performance, right? And I think that there's a place at the table for all the technologies, but we've got to go in knowing that there is not one that doesn't have consequences no, that no. Gaia would say no to. Absolutely. And, and we've, we've discussed, you know, it's, it's, it's all very well saying we're going to go and have loads of EVs with batteries, but then, you, you know, you talk about extraction. Right now, you dig up something black from the ground. Well, you'll be digging up something silver from the ground. Is that good for the planet? So these right. are all things. Let, let, let's bring the boys back in. Um, uh, let's start with you, Alex. Your, your reaction to what Alison's been saying, and then Angus, you jump, chip in. Yeah, I, 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 you know, it, it's great to get Alison and her sort of technical and also regulatory experience and, and, and the perspective. But yeah, my thoughts, a couple on, on the some of the technologies we're going to essentially said there's about 17 carbon capture projects globally, which are currently capturing about 31 million tons of carbon per annum against you know our, our 43 billion ton uh, of emissions so to get that effective and to not have a significant impact on the current quality of life that we enjoy through affordable energy you know needs to be ramped up massively i mean i i can foresee you know the western world may be willing to forego some sort of denial in the region of 20%, but you know, it's never going to get to 100%. The sort of scale, the average US American consumes about 13,000 kilowatt hours per year. Some of the poorest people on the world are in the sort of 200 kilowatt hours, you know, two light bulbs. Um, so you know, the people aren't going to deny themselves um, that much. Society is not going to deny itself that, that scale of reduction. Uh, and the people who don't have the energy you know, deserve more because it does lift lives. So I, I think that the technology like carbon capture with the proper incentives and regulation uh, are going to be essential. And, you know, we talked about hydrogen and getting that to scale, particularly for large scale transport, you know, trade internally, because that has to lot um, as well, that sort of international economy. So you know, hydrogen, I do see as a solution in that, you know, highly complex, not economic yet. Uh, so regulatory needs to change, technology needs to change and then we need to scale it so i think you know those two in addition to the movement that we see in renewables is coming you know lazard recently reported energy project offshore uh, solar are now the cheapest forms of uh, new energy production um but you know that that's still of a, a pretty low scale so we're going to need continue the, the hydrocarbon supply and if we can if we can mitigate the infrastructure changes and capture the emissions from it, uh, which does need the technology and capabilities, then, then I think we can achieve you know, the, the goal of lifting lives as well as staying within the, the rules set by, by Mother Nature. Now, and, and, and I got that. You had a couple of glitches, but I think we got most of what you were saying. I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it, Angus, is that we, we can all want to have clean green tomorrow. But we have to live in the realities of today. I think Alison has just given us, you know, 30 years of experience to that very point. 
what you know the things that I, I've, I've written down a page of notes of what she's just said so thank you so much Alison but the big ones transition is going to take longer yeah everybody is involved everything we manufacture you know, involves consequences and you need nation-state level commitment if you're really going to turn this thing around a, a bit faster that's a that's a great that's a reality check for all of us you know we're all in and we certainly need the expertise of people like Alison to get us there. The one, the one thing I was wondering, and the optimism I have that maybe this could be faster. And you know, last week I finished the conclusion that this is going to take us longer and cost us more than it should. But when I think about the support and expenditure that's come into many of the richer nations through the pandemic, and if yeah. we were to literally do a calculation of dollars spent per quality of years of life extended, uh, then we have spent and shown that we are able to spend a huge amount when we feel a very clear and present danger. Yes, if, that's if, so if we did, yes. If, if we did the maths mm. for extending human lives, uh, being able to live within the planet, you know, it, it's an infinitely cheaper and better return on investment. But because it's not yet felt by sufficient members of society that it's a price we're willing to pay, uh, it doesn't get done. So the pandemic tells me that there is, there is a model we can spend uh, and we can do things really quickly. And once, once that broader switch across regulation, government, business and society says, yep, we need to flip it now, I, I think we, we can make the change quicker. But we need to get to that tipping point as soon as possible. Alison, I was going to ask you something which I think... You know, you've worked, you worked uh, sort of advisory, I think, is that right, with the Obama administration? Uh-huh. Yeah. So you've sat in, in government, and then I know you've got an academic background. So you've sort of been in all of three bits, yeah? You know, there's the business side, there's the politics, and there's the science. In your view, is it really, the, you know, it's that classic thing we have, stick carrot. You know, do we need politicians to kick ass and go, here's the, here's the regulations we want you to hit, by this time and that's when business will get involved and then the science comes up with it is is it that is it that human thing of actually the politics is the play in the end that will decide the direction we go so politics are big right uh, when you think and i i have a couple of things because i like what alex was saying and then i was going to add one thing to it so we'll come back to it but the politics really do kind of prevail you know when years ago when i i first went to go work for a member of congress I had an orientation where, where I was told that there are many different, the P's, right? There's politics, procedure, and then there's the policy. And policy is last in line, right? Okay, because yeah. the other two prevail. And so, and, and you know, that's the reality of the day, but, you know, you know politicians and, and uh, policymakers, you know, for at any level, whether it's a, a, a small municipal area up to a, a nation state level, they've got to make choices to represent their voters, right? And so, you know, again, this this is going back to uh, there's forcing mechanism, and it starts at the voting booth in a lot of, in, at least in democracies where you have a chance to vote. Yeah. So, so, so people have direct influence on government in many parts of the world and can move things along if they signal that, that that's what they want. And I see more of that happening where you see a lot more climate activism and such. I mean, everybody's seen those kinds of headlines. Um, yeah. but that's probably not enough. So I think that we do need a, a, a lot more 
you know, bigger push on the political side. You know, I, I've been watching here in the U.S., I've been watching the uh, Democratic Convention for signs of life as to what they're going to say on, on climate, you know, and positioning this platform. And everybody's been watching that with bated breath. And, and I haven't heard that in the convention, but we've definitely seen signs of, you know, what a Biden administration for sure would say on that. And it seems like it's a stronger but nuanced position. So politics are very important. You know, something that Alex said, though, if I, if I can, um, is, is that, I, I did say that the energy transition is going to take us a while, right? I think we, oh, it's like the person whose eyes are bigger than their stomach and, and, and we kind of want to, we want to get there really fast, but it's really one hard to overcome inertia, particularly in government. Okay. Cause speaking from experience and being a regulator, we had deep water horizon happen mm. and there was this, the single biggest environmental catastrophe on us soil in that century. Okay. In my lifetime. Yeah, And there was so much resistance to change even then, mm -hmm. right? And with a forcing mechanism. And, and it takes a while to get engagement. And so it's not just the, it's not the political leader, it's the whole engaged public that holds yeah. some progress back, okay? Because it isn't one person, it's a variety of stakeholders that has to shape where we head in the energy transition. And so I, I do believe it could go radically, radically fast, right? So COVID has shown us that, I agree, Alex. And I would say energy transition has sped up for a while, you know? And, you know, the coal price inversion with gas and oil was, was profound. There was also, you know, all of the telework, but people are getting tired of telework and they'll probably be back in their offices, frankly. And so, yeah. so some will choose to stay home, but, it has sped up, but will it slow down again is what I'm getting at. As, as we think, see things like weather events happening that become more and more local, expect to see change at local levels in dealing with climate change, okay? And that will be the force that gets people to vote and drive the political movement, in my opinion. To end with, I mean, the question I posed at the beginning is, is, is you know, can black go green? And, you know, you've made a good argument to say, well, it's not just about you know, the, the oil and gas fossil fuel industry is about all of us as a society. But, but the crux of it is, if you're going to build a car now, you kind of would still stick to building a car the way we've always built cars, you know, four wheels and something that drives it. You, you wouldn't throw away that background design. Do you believe, Alison, and, and I'll bring the boys in as well to, to sort of end with, that really it's business. Right now, Baker Hughes is in kind of oil and gas energy business. If it becomes kind of the clean energy business, it's still, it's still business. The, the technology that we have, the knowledge that we have from 200 years of, as you say, digging, uh, going under the water, you know, putting in things in rough seas, all of that, putting in things in mountains, kind of we're going to need all of that if we start to use different forms of energy in more difficult parts of the world. So do you believe that actually we can work together to take us down this pathway because i'm not a very keen one on kind of throwing things out but obviously it depends what what the what, what the mood is of the public and how they respond so i think it's everybody goes and says you know this is an old line you know it's an all of the above approach yeah uh, i will drive it home there's a there's a colleague and friend of mine uh his name is Richard Newell, and, and I'm a really big fan. He's very smart on energy and economics and such, but he, he published something a couple of years back that 
that highlighted the fact that we've never undergone a full energy transition in the history of mankind. Okay. Because we still use campfires and we still, we still have parts of the world where we have the cow dung that's used and, and and technology keeps evolving and it gets better and better. And we see a more dynamic mix. And so I would expect to see, and this is where I get really excited is that we just see more and more diversification of energy. I mean, that's smart. If you put your eggs in one basket, if that becomes a problem, you don't have a fallback position either. And so having that diversification in, in your energy mix is smart because not everything works everywhere. And it might be more affordable in one, one area of the world to do it in a certain way and less affordable in another. And it might work differently with that public, right? And so I think we need to keep an open mind about the future. We need to think about decarbonization as, as for the whole sector, and just be very real and own the pros and cons of any part of the energy mix. I think that's just really important to keep it all in. Angus? Well, I think Alison uh, used, I mean, what a great point about diversification energy mix, but she also said she was excited, you know, by, by that diversification. And, you know, one thing I've been really excited about is when she described an inspection technology. You know, this yeah. is, this is Baker Hughes. You know, and and so you know if uh, you know one thing that I I'm a point that I've made several times um, is that I believe that the environmental human nexus is now perpetual in terms of our scale. We're yes. so strong as a race that this will never stop. So you know we're going to be worrying about the number of man-made chemicals uh, being 150,000 in 2050 as opposed to the 75,000 right now. So to have groups of people that uh, have the expertise, such as those at Baker Hughes, not only diversifying the energy mix, but also diversifying their skill set, applying their skill sets to other problems uh, as we lighten our industrial load on the planet is just very exciting to hear. Alex? Yeah, and I agree. And the, the organizations that society believes adds value to them in a way that, that society values it will prevail um, and you know that is affordable available clean energy increasingly so that you know the companies that can contribute to that will prevail and you know and ultimately those who can't or don't or won't for whatever reason yes. um, simply yes. will not uh, so yeah and I think I think the you know, the individuals in charge of a number of companies you know, genuinely feel it. They're members of society too. You know, they're around their family dinner table having the conversation too, um, and you know they they feel that too and want to make that change. I'm certainly sort of seeing and hearing that. They they also have other restrictions, as as Alison said. You know, other members of society and family members as well who who want certain things, and it's not possible to just change flick a switch and change overnight uh, but I, I think it's it's heartfelt and those organizations that that are able to deliver that will will prevail and those who can't will will go out of business yeah Alison your concluding thoughts first of all thanks a lot for joining us and I know you've got a busy busy uh, day ahead of you but I mean you know in the end I suppose that you know you're a human being aren't you <laughs> yes you, you've got families they you've got children you know you've got people with kids that, that, that we all want to look after the future 
Yep. Yep. So my, my closing thought will be like a, a what I'll call a, a nano story. Okay. So Go for it. Um, I was one of the people who started out in their career and thought big oil was bad. And that was because Valdez, right? That yeah. was my opinion at the time. And when I went to work for Exxon, I was so proven wrong. And I had an advisor that, that basically made me apply for a job there. And, and I have never looked back with regret because it's been such a, a really positive experience for me. But what I will say is, is when I've encountered people who, who question why we have certain, either certain fossil fuels or tech yeah. or something that seems like it's the, the heart of darkness, um, I just want to remind people that we can't totally get away from oil and gas for, for a couple of key reasons, but this is the nano story. Everybody in their life has someone that's battled cancer, okay? And usually we see the nexus of cancer, it starts with blood work, and then it starts with, then it, then it goes on to an MRI, okay? You don't run an MRI without helium and helium comes from gas. Mm. So at the end of the day, oil and gas touches us at the most basic and fundamental level and that's at our family and yeah. our lives, okay? Yeah. So just leave, just leave with that thought that we should always have a diversified mix. We just have to keep ourselves in balance as we think about what the future looks like, knowing that, like my friend Richard would say, we've never phased anything out, probably with good reason. So there's going to be that in the future, but let's see if we can make it a little bit greener. Well, I couldn't think of a better way to end. Alison, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, boys, as ever, great to have a chat. You've been listening to Gaia Says No. Do subscribe to us. Thanks a lot, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to Gaia Says No. Don't forget to subscribe. Future Net Zero. Better business, better planet.